Raking KB with Valdron Barry. And not just one guest this week, Barry. We have what? two guests on this particular episode, which depending on the way the wind blows, this episode will either be titled A Dick Royale or Kippelman Sings. We haven't decided fully which way the wind's going to blow on that. But Barry Rose, are you ready to entertain the masses yet again? This sounds like you got two guests on an episode. You know some big shit's taking place. And, you know, as Jeff announced a few weeks back about uh, the fact that we are essentially wrapping up the weekly podcast sometime, it looks like sometime in early July, uh, we'll hit 300. We got a lot of shit planned, but we're givers, Jeff. As you always say, what are we? We're gi- I got to say also, and I think I did mention this to you. Linda looks at me and goes, you know what I am, don't you? And I said, what? She goes, I'm a giver. With this big smile on her face. As she's That's listening. two weeks in a row you've told the story. I'm forbidding That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. On this particular episode, not just will uh, Barry Rose be receiving, apparently, <clears throat> something. I don't know what. Uh, we are going to be joined by, you know, Barry, for those of you out there that are Patreon subscribers. Oh. By the way, I know the ones of you out there who are not Patreon subscribers. I get a listing from uh, TGBL. I'm just saying. So. But for those of you who are Patreon subscribers, and we appreciate you, you have been following along as Barry and myself have been doing the top 201 wrestler list that was compiled, aggregated, if you will, by Wrestling Observer Newsletter contributor Carl Stern. We're actually going to be joined this week by Carl Stern, Barry, who's going to talk about his list. Is he pissed at me? Uh, well, I think that the words kicking his ass was, uh, you know, something about that. Was, uh, was, but, uh, yeah, so we're going to talk to Carl. Nice little interview where we're going to, uh, perhaps lead into uh, a future Patreon show. Uh-huh. Besides all that, Barry Rhodes, can you believe we've done 283 prior episodes? Now we're at episode 284 and Vandal Drummond joins us. Yes, Kurt Brown joins us to talk match of the week as we are going to the Olympic Auditorium. Might have been 77, might have been 78. I don't know. Vandal thinks it's 77. YouTube says 78. As we are looking, you know, Barry, on the Patreon show, we uh, talked recently with Carl about great underrated tag teams of all time. And certainly one of them has to be Gordman and Goliath, scourge of the rings of the L.A. Olympic Auditorium and in Texas. Uh, Barry, I think during the interview, you referenced that they went down to uh, the rings of CWF once at least. They were in Georgia for a short time. Great, great tag team that time in a lot of ways has forgotten, Bear. Yeah, they they really were, too. And I, I think the impact, I don't know how kind history has been. Like, I don't know if you can sit and watch their matches and understand the impact that they had in the territory. But what they did in Los Angeles, obviously, was legendary. And, and it was covered by the uh, the magazines, the Bill After Stanley Weston magazines. But Texas and Vandal references the Paul Bosch connection. These guys were huge in Texas. They were so big that they weren't just the tag team champions. I believe Goliath and possibly even Gordman. I know Goliath was Texas heavyweight champion at one point. So if, if Paul Bosch is making a guy who's primarily known for his tag team wrestling, you're the Texas heavyweight champion. This is a real talent right here. So these guys grossly underrated. Uh, just, I think, honestly, I think a, a smart promoter, even Eddie Graham, and you know, when I referenced this in the interview, and Eddie Graham 
could have done something where they come out and, you know, they, they start to reference Cuba because even in 76, we had a lot of Cuban refugees living in South Florida. And I, I think it would have gotten over his heels. They would have gotten over his gangbusters. They could have come and they could have said, you know, we're from Cuba. We're Castro sympathizers, something like that. Yeah, yeah that exactly. might have got a little bit of heat in 76. That's all yeah, it might have got a lot of heat. But I, I just think it's a missed opportunity because as wrestlers, these guys had it as a tag team. And I love the tag team that actually works together. These guys really knew how to work together. And again, you could have generated heat. You would have sold tickets. I don't know. Missed opportunity, obviously, almost 45 years later, longer at this stage, 47 years later. But they're, they were fantastic, Jeff. And we are going to be featuring them in our match of the week at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles, taking on Chavo Guerrero and the mysterious Mass Canadian. Hmm, Barry, who could that Mass Canadian be? Joe LaDuke. Uh, no, it was not Joe LaDuke. Uh, so, but it was a guy from Canada. That is a uh, a guy that a lot of people in the brothership are big fans of. I'm just going to say that. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about that. Uh, well, the interview with uh, with Carl Stern. we got some Florida man. got a little bit of everything. Barry Rose, why don't we go right now to our interview with Carl Stern? So, Barry, one of the things that we've been doing on our Patreon channel, for those of you that have been listening, as we've been counting down the top 201 wrestlers of all time, uh, as uh, based on an article that was written by Carl Stern, uh, we've had some fun talking about the list. So, Barry, you know what I think would be a really good idea, my man? What do you, Jeff? Because let's be honest, you and I are both givers. What do totally. You what do you totally? What do you think would be a great idea right now? In that, well, regard? thank you, Barry. I appreciate you asking me that. Absolutely. Question. What I think would be a really good idea is if we could have Carl Stern join us right this second. Let me see if he's what? out there. Hey, Carl. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, Carl look, Stern, hey I've, heard, I've heard all the trash talk. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, Carl said before we started recording, he's going to meet up Barry and kick his ass from one into the, you know, one. Yes, the he did. And Jeff, then I heard Carl was like six six, and it had worked. <laughs> had been a wrestler, and I am clearly making my way to Canada as we're speaking right exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> well, maybe you can hang out with Hannibal when you get up there. So. Well, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, well, there's no, there's nothing to fear here because that's exactly what I wanted to encourage with this list is debate and of conversation. Course. And what's the great thing about this list is I I'm not personally invested in it at all because this is an aggregated list where I took. About 30 different sources, these being books, uh, websites, even newsletters. Uh, there's been several books that do rankings, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Top 500, Dave uh, Meltzer's, uh, you know, uh, his uh, year-end awards, Hall of Fame, stuff like that, and factored it all together. So what this actually is, is not Carl's opinion, but the universal consensus. And what I, I wanted to come up with was if you ask just the world, the universe. Hey, who are the best wrestlers ever? This is what you'd come up with. And I find it utterly fascinating because there are people on this list I wouldn't have put on my list in a million years. I was shocked to see, you know, some of the people I used were very well-known historians. I, and I did a, a source on, you can check and see what sources I used and who all I used. Many very well-known historians. And it's kind of interesting that these people in their list would put people who generally may might get 
I, I won't say scoffed at for, for putting in the conversation, but people that are generally speaking not that well respected. Yet, when it comes down to, well, you know, do I consider them? There they are on multiple lists. And I find it fascinating. And uh, I, I hope it's caused some conversation. I'm glad it, it has caused some conversation because I had a lot of fun doing it. And it's kind of opened my eyes to some things. Well, Carl, I can tell you as uh, someone who did a list of the top 100 matches of the 1980s, uh, I can tell you there's nothing like a list like that or a list like yours to start some good old fashioned conversation and having some people lose their, uh, you know, collective minds because, well, this guy wasn't rated high enough or this guy was rated too high. Uh, and that, uh, that kind I'm of thing. I'm taking that personal, Jeffrey. When well, you, you know, like that, you were, so. you were the guy I think that freaked out the most, but you know, that's, right. that's another story for another time. So, Carl, let me ask you, what was the genesis of this idea? Like, you know, at what point, how long ago did you sit there and, you know, did you wake up one day and go, you know, I need to do a list of the top 201 wrestlers of all time. How did you come up with the number 201? Uh, let's start from that baseline. How did this all, what was the genesis of all this? So that's a great question. Uh, I like first off, I, I understand the number is weird, but. I run a website, and, and if you don't mind me plugging it, it's Absolutely, it cool. go ahead. Yeah, whenitwascool.com. And, uh, of course, I've been a pro wrestling historian for, you know, 40 years now. I've worked for uh, Dave at the uh, Wrestling Observer doing a show over there for over Does that mean, years. Carl, let, let me interrupt. Does that mean you were also on the uh, the payroll of AEW like so many people claim? <laughs> you well, know, I, I have had much discussion with them about why I'm not getting my kickback, I, you know, <laughs> and, and I, I therefore re, I therefore refuse to tow the company line because uh, you know I'm not getting my commission for for whatever reason. <laughs> but, I did notice that Kenny Omega was not number one in the listing of the two hundred one, so you know somehow that uh, line got all skewed. Anyway, I well, here's the thing: they've got my bank account number. If they want to push it up there, <laughs> there you, you know. Go. <laughs> so. Running a website, I have to be mindful of weird things that normal human beings shouldn't be aware of, like search engine optimization. Now, there's a term I never hoped I'd learn in my life, but here I am having to deal with it. And weird numbers like 201, well, they search up better than numbers like 100. So that and that alone is the reason I went with 201, because, hey, it's catchy, you can remember it, and also it's going to rank higher in Google. So, you know, I wish it were more interesting than that, but it's not. As for how I come to put the list together, of course, I've, I've been a historian for a long, long time. I, you, I'm sure you guys obviously remember back in the day, the uh, uh, there was a group of minority wrestlers who sued WCW. Well, I put a newsletter basically coming to that conclusion that, hey, there's something going on here. And it was just basically a statistical compilation. Well, Dave ran a story about it in The Observer. And the next thing I know, I'm getting hired by a law firm in Georgia, Meadows, Ictor, and Trigg. And uh, they have hired me to do statistical research for their lawsuit. And that's how I got drug into that. So I've been doing this for a while. And uh, over at whenitwascool.com, I do retro pop culture and pro wrestling history. And I've done a number of these top 100 lists. And I knew one of these days... I was going to have to do the wrestlers. So my list would look way different than the one I ended up doing because I asked the question, hey, you know, there's different, seems, seems to me to be different bubbles in wrestling. 
Okay, you and I've been in the observer bubble for many, many, many years where work rate and hot moves and Japan and let's just be honest, those are preferable over weird Memphis stuff. I love weird Memphis stuff. So I know, hey, uh, you know, I know Kenny Omega flips good, does a lot of cool stuff, and maybe you love him, and that's great and wonderful. But you know what I like? Good old Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee and things like that. And there's a place for that, right? I mean, wrestling's not a sport. Come on, it's it's predetermined. So there's a place for the entertainment portion of it. So I started gathering all these lists together. What would be? the difference between, say, Wrestling Observer putting out of Pro Wrestling Illustrated? Well, one's kayfabe and one's insider. Why not meld those two ideas and just see what you come up with? So I started crunching the numbers and, ta-da, this is what we got. This is this is, this is is why about who's number 100 versus 101, because the universe has dictated this, all opinions considered, this is what people think. So I, I just kind of had fun with it. It gave it a little little twist without just the the boring hey i think this guy's moves are better than this other guy's moves i mean you know we can do that all day long with star ratings and whatever i find that not as interesting and and i think jeff and i would both agree with you on that first off i want to give a shout out to matt mann uh out in the the bay area right alongside sweet lou matt is a huge fan of yours and when we started uh reviewing the list great yeah Oh, he is. He, Matt, and I were ready to go knuckle up over years. Just to say, he, uh, he, he was, he was texting me and uh, messaging me and saying, "No, no, Carl is, you know, he's just really in your corner and defending you with this." And I think you and I have been in contact years ago. Didn't you go by the name Dragon King, Carl? That is right. Yes, absolutely. In fact. Thank you for opening the door for that. I just have a new book out under that name on 1983 wrestling. So, yeah, I still... What a sweet I, I segue, down. Barry. What a sweet oh, segue. Only the best. Absolutely. <laughs> Got to get them in where you can get them, right? Well, I, if you could, I actually uh, have read that you have this book coming out. Could you tell us the title and where it's available for the uh, listeners? Absolutely. Dragon King Carl Stern's 1983 Pro Wrestling Omnibus, available right now at Amazon for Kindle or soft cover. Thank All right. You. Appreciate there it. you go. <laughs> gotcha. So you, you had mentioned that you, this was aggregate and that you had pulled this from different either websites, books, etc. Kind of give us a hint on where this information came from. What were some of the sources? Yeah, this. Uh, OK, that's where I really had a lot of fun doing this because, OK, several years ago, Dave Meltzer, along with somebody, and forgive me, I forget the name. These are all sourced on the on the list, but they actually did a book themselves, the 100 top wrestlers. Now it was a little, it's a little outdated now because it's around the early 2000s. But then there were people like, um, uh, you know, of course, Pro Wrestling Illustrated does their top 500 every year. So I got the totality of those averaged together and saw what their all time, you know, how that would shake out. Uh, I did over at uh, Wrestling Classics Message Board. They had done a project over there where a lot of uh, wrestling historians, uh, several of them, and I only use people who I know. I, I knew they did good work, people like Steve Yoey and Mark Hewitt and people whose work I had been a fan of and, and read up on. And look, hey, if they think, and that's, these are the people I kind of heard you guys have a little fun with, as you should, people like Farmer Burns and, 
you know, Bert Asserini and people <laughs> like that. Okay, well, that's where you learn about those those folks from these historians who have, who have done that. Where do those people fit? Because let's face it, what Farmer Burns and Frank Gotch did is professional wrestling, but it's not what professional wrestling is today. So it's, in a lot of ways, apples and oranges called by the same name. So how do you how do you do that? Well, you just average it all together and see where the numbers fall. But honestly, one of the uh, one of I'll say the uh, the criticisms I've got about the list, which I think is a fair one, is that international wrestlers probably should place higher. The problem is, and then somebody actually pointed this out to me, and I think it's a good observation. I used English sources, okay? I, I don't. I speak English and I speak a little bit of Spanish, but I don't speak, you know, Japanese or whatever. So yes, there is a bias in there toward, you know, because all these lists and books and websites were English language uh, uh, periodicals and such. So that did skew it a little bit, and I think that's a fair criticism. And if it's ever looked at again, uh, maybe any time we come across a Japanese wrestler or or a luchador, maybe they're their standing should be a little higher than what it's reflected. And I think that's a fair criticism. So, Carl, let me ask you, uh, as you were preparing the list, you said, you know, uh, this guy may not be somebody that I'm a fan of, but, uh, you know, he has a, a good standing historically. So you said you like Memphis wrestling. Without, uh, you know, we're not going to spoil the uh, the lead story here, but if it was Carl Stern's list, who did you grow up a fan of? You said you like Jerry Lawler. Was Memphis your kind of go-to as a kid? I'm going to blow your mind here. If I, if I did Carl's list, my number one wrestler, Mr. Olympia, Jerry Stubbs. Okay? Really? He's not even on the list of 201. but he's We've actually interviewed Jerry before. Yeah, I love Jerry. Jerry's great. Uh, you know, Austin Idol, he's not on our list. He would be on mine. He'd be way up there. Bob Armstrong, people like that. I really grew up watching uh, Ron Fuller's Southeastern Championship Wrestling, and I also got the uh, Memphis Wrestling out of their te- television market out of uh, Tupelo, Mississippi. So that, I mean, literally the most southern of the southern wrestling is what I grew up watching, what I grew up getting. And uh, that, that's naturally what I, when I got, when I finally was able to get Mid-South right before it became a UWF, oh my gosh, that was the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my life. So that's more in line to me than... You know, WWF, I was never that big a fan of. Uh, there were certainly personalities I liked, certainly, you know, uh, but the, the overall package of it, eh, it was a little too, I don't want to use the term fake, but it was a little too showy for me. It was a little too generic, and uh, that's most people's favorite thing. Uh, not my favorite thing, but most people. So my list would skew more toward, uh, you know the, and I think Southern wrestling kind of gets a kind of gets a bad rap. I mean, I think it's underrepresented. A lot of your older journalists and stuff, like Dave and whatever, man, you know they're all about no no offense, Lou, but San Francisco and, and Los Angeles, and I think those areas, New York, uh, uh, even so, I think those areas are often overrepresented. Whereas Memphis per capita is pulling in as many or more people per capita again as. Los Angeles or New York was. Yet it's it was looked down on. It was it was, you know, that that crazy Memphis stuff. And I don't think that's fair at all. Obviously a lot of people liked it and loved it, and I'm one of them. And I I I'm gonna defend it to 
to the end. I think it was great stuff. Well, you make you make some great points, Carl. And you know, you look at it. Memphis was drawing every Monday night somewhere between I don't know eight to eleven thousand people. And and yeah, you know, bigger cities in the Northeast, Madison Square Garden might be drawing eighteen or nineteen thousand, but that's once every month, once every five or six weeks. Uh, I you know, Memphis really was a great drawing town for so many years. And I think Jeff and I would agree with you as well. The first time. I ever saw any wrestling coming out of the Northeast, out of the WWWF. Growing up, watching CWF in Florida, it was terrible. And I, there was many an argument had back in the kayfabe days between Southern fans and Northeast fans. But that style of wrestling, slow, plodding, just no excitement for me at all. I was not a fan at all. Uh, Carl, you worked, you, you were a professional wrestler at one point, isn't that correct? Oh, I was absolutely terrible when you should have saw me. It was, uh, <laughs> it, it didn't, it didn't take me very long to realize, yes, I may be a large human being, you know, I'm six foot three. And back then I was, you know, fairly athletic, 220, 230, somewhere in there. I had, I was clumsy. I had no coordination, had no business doing this. I, I worked with people like Mike Jackson and Ken Timms and, uh, uh, Hector Guerrero and people like that were where I, I started up on. And I quickly realized I, I probably need to be using my brain instead of my brawn. And, uh, we started running some shows here around the North Alabama area, independent shows. I started doing, uh, announcing. I did announcing, uh, you know, just for the, the crowd, but there was one show, uh, Mike Jackson, uh, who, you know, everybody knows one of the greatest enhancement guys ever. Uh, he actually had TV out of a small town called Fayette, Alabama, uh, for a, for a little while on their local cable access. And so we did voiceover announcement for that and stuff. And ultimately what I wanted to do was I like writing. I mean, I, I basically wanted to be Bill after growing up. You know, I wanted to do photography and, and writing and stuff. And by this time I'd gotten, you know, heavily into the newsletters and stuff. So I had a career. I mean, I, I've been a law enforcement officer for this year is, 31 years I've been doing that. So I had a career. I didn't need to make a living out of it, but I liked it for fun. I enjoyed it. And so, uh, you know, that's been wrestling has been my side hustle for three decades or so now. A side hustle. I like that too. And, uh, so it, where I was going with that as well, do you think having worked in the business gives you a different perspective? As you're looking at this list, and as you stated, you would have put other guys that would have been on here, Jerry Stubbs, Austin Idol, etc. But do you think it gives you a different perspective than the average fan? In some ways, yeah. I mean, for one thing, you know, I thought I was in pretty good shape back then. And you see, at that point in time, Ken Timms had put on quite a bit of weight. And, you know, he was the dude could go forever. And I'm like, how do you do this? How do you, and I looked at people like Buddy Rose and and people, Dusty Rhodes, good grief, people that, you know, maybe maybe weren't the muscle monsters or whatever, and you wonder, how on earth are these guys so athletic? And it certainly gave me a, it gave me a different perspective. But one thing it did do to me, obviously, I can appreciate, quote, you know, and I, I'm not saying this to make fun of it. Obviously, I love good, solid, technical professional wrestling, too, but. The, the hot move guys, look, Hector Guerrero back in his day was as good as anybody was. He was tremendous. But, man, it really made me appreciate the entertainers, the guys who just go out there and with their little, you know, with their little uh, 
you know, facial expressions and things like that could make a crowd hate them, make a crowd love them, make a crowd laugh, make you understand what it, what they were doing, tell a story. Uh, I come to appreciate that probably just the little intricacies more than I think I ever would have known otherwise. So let me ask you, uh, one of the things that, that strikes you, strikes me, uh, you kind of brought it up in the very beginning was, uh, you were talking about, uh, Japan and Memphis. You know, when you're trying to do a list like this, and it was something that I found when I was preparing my list at the, uh, the end of the 1980s for the matches is, you know, pro wrestling being what it is, it's kind of hard to compare when you see, as an example, Jerry Stubbs or Jerry Lawler to somebody like Tatsumi Fujinami or, you know, the Dynamite Kid or Tiger Mask. Or if you go down and you look into the Lucha, you know, guys, and you, you talk about uh, just because we just passed him on the list, a Dr. Wagner Jr. Uh, and then, you know, you go up and you, you know, try to figure out where you're going to place a guy like, just as an example, a Bruno San Martino. So how difficult was it uh, from your point of view as you're preparing this list to compare a guy like Dr. Wagner Jr. to a guy like Bruno San Martino to a guy like, you know, uh, uh, Tatsumi Fujinami or Inoki or somebody like that. How hard was that? Well, I, I literally just went wherever the math led and, and yeah. it put that there. But, you know, for me personally, I like a lot of different styles, even though I've, I've sat here and, you know, kind of said that, you know, your your modern day, I call it, and I don't mean this, this is not a knock, by the way, like your video game style wrestling. Uh, that's fine. That's great. I love Lucha Libre. I, 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 and it makes no sense in a lot of ways. Uh, you, but I always, you know, I like the colorful nature of it. I like the mask. I like the uh, gymnastics of it. I think there's a place for all of it. And that's historically been one of the, I think the, the best things about professional wrestling is there's so much different, so many different styles out there to like the, the Japanese, you know, harder hitting style, love that stuff, man. You 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 put big guys like big dudes like Stan Hansen, Vader, Bruiser Brody, Bam Bam Bigelow, people like that. God, I love that stuff. I mean, those are some of my favorite things. So you can have a lot of different things. If there's anything that I dislike about wrestling, especially in the modern era, it's that it's become generic in a lot of ways. It's all became, especially goodness, it's. You know, really in the early 2000s, it became a bunch of lookalikes doing the WWE style, and it become kind of a boring place to be for a while. I'm sort of glad that there's a, that, you know, that's why I kind of drifted toward Lucha a little bit right in there is because it was so different. You mean you weren't a big fan of every guy that had uh, lots of muscles and seemingly about 12 tattoos? Because uh, for a while, that seems like that's all wrestling was. Anyway, I digress. Well, well they, they, they stamped Billy Gunn out repeatedly and just changed his head. And put it on <laughs> so, you know, but one of the things is that Barry and I have tried to convey that uh, some people, I don't know if they missed a boat on it or what, but, you know, Barry and I, and I think I can speak for Barry here, you know, we grew up watching CWF and, you know, we grew up with a Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk, Paul Jones, Buddy Colt style of wrestling. That's what we enjoy. But, you know, uh, there's nothing quite as constant as change and the wrestling business has evolved. I, I mean, 125 years plus of wrestling. Uh, guess what? What Frank Gotch and Farmer Burns did, since you mentioned those names, is not the same thing as what's going on with Roman Reigns. You know, I, I mean, 
wrestling is always changing and it's always evolving. And I think that might have made your list kind of hard. Uh, you know, you, you talk about go back and do the math and, and you just follow the math, but it's got to make it hard to kind of quantify, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. It does. I mean, the only consistent thing I can see that has been with wrestling over the last, you know, 130, 150 years is the fact that the media, whatever it is, be it newspapers, be it magazines, newsletters, TV, they all have to tell you it's fake first. And that seems to be the only constant that's been there since from William Muldoon to Roman Reigns. Every The media has never really took taken it seriously, despite it bringing in millions to now billions of dollars. And a huge section of the population loves it. And it is a legitimate pop culture entertainment property. The media has always had to turn their nose up at it. And I think that reflects far more on the media than it does on uh, wrestling. Well, it does, too, and, and you would see that, and there were a few journalists that would actually do it in a legitimate way and not scoff and mock it. There was a uh, a guy out in Florida for years, Jim Selman, that would actually write about professional wrestling, and even though he wouldn't get into the specifics of the legitimacy of it, he didn't turn it into some sort of joke. But So which uh, of all the names that are on this list – which do you maybe most disagree with? Like who is low that should have been higher? Or And, and I don't want to say who's really high that should have been lower because we haven't gotten there yet. We're basically only the first or the bottom uh, 100 to 201. Right. But who, who in that group do you feel has been completely just misrepresented and should be so much higher? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. And I'm not really sure I have a great answer answer for it because – there were, I do, I'll Carl. I, I do. I can, yeah. <laughs> well, go ahead. I'd, I'd love to hear. Love to hear. Oh, I, I could tell you Don Morocco is the first one that sticks out of my mind. There were names on that list. Yeah. Danny that Hodge. Were, Danny Hodge, yeah. Wahoo McDaniel, Dick Murdoch. But there were there was a select group that were extremely low, and then there were guys that were positioned much higher yeah. that I just sat here and went, Absolutely. oh, yeah. my okay. God. I, I agree there were some real surprises there. Okay. Just to, just to kind of address the ones you were, this is what I saw. Okay, for one thing, Don Morocco was great, absolutely, no question. It seems like, and, and again, who were your wrestling media people around that, that time? Well, Dave was the only one. Dave and, uh, you know, maybe uh, Norm Dooley and a few people like that were the only people reporting. They thought Don Morocco was fat and lazy. And I hate to say it, but that is exactly their opinion of him after a certain point. And so they, whether meaning to or not, cast some shade on him, quite frankly. Dick Murdoch's another guy who is, you know, great, obvi- obviously, but Dick Murdoch was kind of his own worst enemy in a lot of ways. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, I even heard you when you guys discussed him. Every point you made was exactly correct. That's why he's not so much further up. I think there's my, my more of my problem with it was some people that were way up high that I didn't think had any business there. The one that sticks out the most, and you'll eventually get to him, is Jake Roberts. I mean, like every mainstream list from Sports Illustrated to whatever, you know, some of the more mainstream ones, uh, Bleacher Report and all that, they love them some Jake Roberts, okay? Jake's fine, you know, but he's just fine, okay? He was a very entertaining guy. He was nowhere, you know, skill-wise in the level of like a Danny Hodge or or Dynamite Kid or Tiger Master or any of those people like that. 
but he was a well-known, famous person. Okay, so they therefore reflected him very highly in their list, much more highly than I think he deserves. Should he be on the list? Yeah, I think so, but not nearly as high as he was. And I think there's a few that way. I think the very top list when you get there is fairly solid. I mean, any of the top 10, let's be honest, are interchangeable with one another. But I I think it's, it's pretty fair. But there are a few in there that I was like, you know, holy cow, I can't, you know, I can't wrap my head around this. But this is let me double check the math. Yep, that's what it is. You know, enough people put them on their list where that's the way it worked and left me scratching my head as well. Well, let me let me get to you uh, before I get to my next question. Uh, following up on that, you know, you, what you said about Morocco and maybe the fact that Dave uh, and and guys that were covering it, uh, the very small group of people that were covering it, referred to Don as as being fat and lazy at the time. And of course, they weren't taken into account that time during the seventies and early part of the eighties when he was absolutely fantastic. Great, but yes, absolutely you, great. Yeah, you, but using that logic, okay? Do you think? If you're going to and I'm, I'm going away from your list in particular and just talking uh, in general terms, one of the things that every year when the Observer Hall of Fame balloting comes up, OK, and there's always those guys that seemingly are, are close, but don't quite get in. And Barry and I have had this discussion about three guys, I, I think, and that's Sergeant Slaughter, Kerry uh, Von Erich and JYD. OK, well, for years, as he got heavier lazier and was really kind of just going on his own personal charisma dave referred to the junkyard dog as the junk food dog and it was kind of like a little funny joke among you know uh, hardcore smart wrestling fans so do you think in retrospect if what dave was saying about morocco maybe influenced some people's views on morocco do you think that people have a memory of dave calling jyd the junk food dog kind of like has people going, well, that, that was the guy that Melter talked about was being fat and lazy and junk. he put on all the weight. I mean, do you see what I'm going at here? Do you think that could have skewed people's opinions to the point where he's not a candidate for the Hall of Fame when maybe, in fact, he deserves to be? I think it's the case. Uh, I think that's for a lot of a lot of In fact, very much so for a couple you just mentioned there. I will say this in Dave's defense. He does have a perspective that a lot of people don't. And should and and doing a list like this is one that gives you, and that's of time. Okay, there were some people who were very great for a short period of time in a very specific area, and I think that sums up Junkyard Dog. I have researched Junkyard Dog backwards and forwards. I mean, I've got there. There's a guy out there, and I'm not gonna call his name, but he does a lot of wrestling history work. He absolutely hates me because I won't vote for Junkyard Dog solely because I won't vote for Junkyard Dog in the Observer Hall of Fame. And I have tried, and I have given JYD every single benefit of the doubt, and I continue to come back to the conclusion that for a very narrow period of time, he was great. But it's a very narrow period of time, and it's only really in the Louisiana, New Orleans area. If there's a New Orleans Wrestling Hall of Fame, Junkyard Dogs, the better be the first person you put in it. But when you're considering the entire world and the entire history of wrestling, Junkyard Dog has a very hard case to make. Uh, and, and again, like Dick Murdoch, he's kind of his own worst enemy in that. I've been an advocate for Sergeant Slaughter forever. I think Sergeant Slaughter crossed over into the popular culture. 
think he was a great representative for wrestling. He has one thing that holds me back that I wish he would be a little more clear about his actual lack of military service when he's talking to people in the real true media. And, uh, you know, the character Sergeant Slaughter can be whatever he wanted to be. That's fine. A fictional character can have whatever biography. But when a newspaper or a TV or a shoot interview is interviewing the real actual person, needs to be telling the real actual truth. And Slaughter's not been the best at doing that. But that aside, I think Slaughter's right. To me, I vote for him. I vote for him every time because I think he passes that mark. But he's a guy, too, that started slacking, you know, late in his career. He started really slacking. Kerry Von Erich, very close comparison to Junkyard Dog in a lot of ways in that man for a short period of time. That dude was as hot as anywhere could be. He had all the he checks more boxes to me than Junkyard Dog does just because I think he had, a, uh, you know, a little he got that NWA world title run short. 18 days, though it may be, and also the Intercontinental run in WWF, where Junkyard Dog never got that vote for whatever that matters. Maybe it doesn't even matter to, to you, but to me, it, it checks a, a few boxes. So, yeah, I mean, the, these with some of these guys, man, look, the one that got me, the one that absolutely blowed my mind, and honestly, maybe just sit down my Observer Hall of Fame ballot and question whether I'm ever going to do it again or not is is a Rocket and Perez from this past year. If, if there was a no-brainer, it was that one. And lo and behold, when I got that issue and they didn't get in, I was like, who is even voting for this? Like, who doesn't even recognize that Rocca and Perez were one of the greatest tandem draws of all time? And I don't even want to hear the tired old sad argument of, well, you know, you could put a Rocco with anybody. He could have been put with a stool pigeon. And it was all about... And they say the same thing about the Rock and Roll Express with Robert Gibson and whatever. Well, the fact is, they weren't. That's who they were with. That's who made the draw. I don't care what your theoretical idea of is, oh, they could put Ricky Morton with anybody. No, but they did. They put him with Robert Gibson, and they're one of the greatest tag teams of all time and deserve to be in there. Ditto to Rock and Press. So, to me, it's not even a, a valid argument, whatever, you know, alternate universe theory you may have. We're talking about this one. and. I can't believe they didn't get in. It's just mind boggling. Yeah. You know, Carl, I really want you to feel like you can just express your opinion here. <laughs> yeah. Please open up. Tell us. So listening to you speak, it, it's, it's interesting because the arguments you just made, uh, for the junkyard dog were initially essentially the same arguments that Jeff and I made. He was a, uh, a big star, possibly one of the biggest in the world for a very short period of time. But I would actually even give him his initial run in the WWF. I think he was big, maybe for a year, maybe a little bit less. The only difference between he and Murdoch, Murdoch was a guy who drew on top for a couple of decades. Yes, there were times he would phone it in. He would, it was comedy. He was having fun. He was goofy, et cetera. But, you know, Murdoch also was essentially a main event guy in every territory. And as Jeff said, going back to Morocco, if you saw Morocco in the mid 80s, you know, yeah, right. He was overweight. He was a little bit lazy in the 1970s up until the early 80s. This guy was a massive, massive workhorse. I think one of the best workers in the country at that stage as well. Uh, yeah, I, I would have no no problem with 
uh, Murdoch in in the Hall of Fame. Quite honestly, I I, I think I don't know. I don't remember if he fell off the ballot or not. He may have already fallen off, but I, I think he's uh, I think he's perfectly acceptable to be on there. I wouldn't be mad about it. That's for sure. Yeah. So he, this is something that's always near to dear in my heart. Much like lists, I have a similar uh, opinion of Hall of Fames. So I, I'm not generally a big fan of either. What do you think of Hall of Fames? Just in a, and I realize that's a random question in a lot of ways, but what, what's your take on Hall of Fames? There, there's not a uniform definition. <laughs> there's a, there's a, I mean, just look, compare the WWF Hall of Fame to the Observer Hall of Fame, which has honestly a very narrow criteria. Not necessarily one I agree with, but a narrow criteria. And so when you name any, like, look, and don't even get me started on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is, <laughs> <laughs> don't even, I ain't even going to go there. But, yeah, there, I think it's a great thing to, to award, to recognize people's careers and whatever their line of whatever is. And, and that's fine and dandy, but, uh, you know, it's, all of them have problems. I mean, all of them, NBA, uh, NFL, they've, they've all got some issues. And uh, it all it all boils down to what's the criteria. With WWF, it doesn't seem to have, or WWE, it doesn't seem to have one. With Dave, at least, the Observer has a set of criteria that you're supposed to go by. Whether you agree with that criteria or not is, is an argument to be had, but at least he has one. So I think it's, it's far more... Uh, probably the most valid one out there. That's Honestly, of any of them. <laughs> That's fair. So one thing that uh, I was wondering as you did this list and, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where you come up with some list and then like you wonder what's the, what's the next list that's going to come down the road that, uh, that I'm going to want to do or, or someone's going to ask me about. And I guess as I started doing the list and I got like maybe five or 10 uh, names into the list, my question was, have you ever considered doing, if not 201, a certain number or listing for women or ladies uh, in the history oh, of pro wrestling? Jeff. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, yeah, I thought about it for about nothing, point nothing seconds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that ain't my gig and never has been. Uh, I have just never, even back in the days of old fabulous Moolah and all that, I've <laughs> never cared. Sorry, I'm, I'm Lou Thez when it comes to that. I'm like... <laughs> You can look like have your own organization. That's fine. Uh, you know, do your deal, but like keep your chocolate out of my peanut butter kind of deal. And look, I understand that's going to generate me great amount of hate. I don't care. I'll eat your tears. It doesn't bother me at all. So I, it's just not my thing. I'm not that's qualified guest ever. to. Uh, so you're going to leave it to me to do the Chagusa Nagayo uh, uh, biography. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Well, 100%, thanks a lot. 100%. But in, all fair, <laughs> but in all fairness and all honesty, most of the source lists I used did not rank them in either. So it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair to, to try to rank people. And tag teams the same way. Uh, it fell into the same deal. You know, how do one or two of these lists rank tag teams in there? One or two didn't. So it's their go, the, the points are going to skew unnecessarily low for them. So it's not fair to include either either women professional wrestlers or tag teams in this list because it's it's already No, no, I wasn't I wasn't that. asking you to put women in this list because I, I understand that's a separate thing. You know, I I just didn't know if, whether or not you had ever considered since you've done, you know, 201 
uh, for men, whether or not you'd ever consider doing any form of a list for the, uh, for the ladies. That's all. So I, I also Jeff's wanna... still feeling yesterday being international women's that's day. That's what it is. I'm very sensitive. Jeff is still, you are, you're still sensitive to this issue. I felt like uh, for Linda and Kim Barry, I needed to ask that question because I'm sure they care. And uh, our daughters. Yes. Yes. So, so Carl, I tell you what, the last question I want to ask you for this particular uh, portion of the segment is, you, you, you said that you liked uh, Jerry Stubbs. That was your favorite wrestler and stuff like that. So you're getting there. Uh, you're doing the list. And I don't know if you started at the top and went down to the bottom or you started at the bottom and you went, worked your way up top. But let's just say for the sake of argument, you're at number 201. Okay. And whoever number 201 was, quite frankly, I don't remember, Barry. But you're sitting there and you're going, son of a bitch. Jerry Stubbs isn't even going to make this <laughs> list, man. What the hell? He's my all-time favorite. How tempting was it for you? Because who's going to know? Just to say, you're going to bump number 201. Out, and by God, I'm putting Jerry Stubbs in there. Was that a temptation? Well, I'll put it this way. That, that's how you can tell I'm honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because absolutely, I was like, darn it. <laughs> so, well, I can appreciate that answer. So now what I would like to do is I'd like to uh, go further into our discussion of the top 201 oh. wrestlers with the person that uh, uh, created the list, uh, created the formula, mathematically speaking, for the list. Let's start at number 99. Oh, wait a minute, Barry. That's only for Patreon subscribers. Thanks, Carl. Very time once again for the old match of the week and decided to do a little something different, Barry. You know, we were recently talking uh, with friend of the show, Carl Stern, and we got into discussing great tag teams. And one of the great tag teams, I think at this point, uh, they were regarded as great during their heyday, but time having passed, maybe uh, some of our younger listeners may not be as familiar with one of the now great underrated tag teams of all time, and that's Gordman and Goliath. And, Barry, you know what I figured? I figured who better to talk about Gordman and Goliath with than Roy Lucy? Uh, well, Roy's not available, what? so what the hell? <laughs> Kurt Vandal Drummond in for the hot tag. Kurt Brown, what's happening, my man? Oh, not too much. And if you can't find uh, Roy Lucy, I, I think uh, Vandal Drummond might be an okay uh, replacement. Will you Passable. be under? Will you be under the hood, though? That's all I'm asking because you. Know, I'll I, be any un, any hood, whether it's Lucky Pierre or uh, whatever multitude of gimmicks are you are two thousand. I'll put any of those hoods on if you want. I can talk so, like a robot or raging queen. There we whatever go. You want. And we are going to one of Vandal's favorite arenas, the historic Olympic Auditorium in downtown Los Angeles, 1978, as Gordman and Goliath take on Chavo Guerrero and the mysterious mass Canadian. Can't imagine who that might be. So before we throw it to Kurt, Barry Rose, you've had a chance to watch this match. Tell the folks what you thought about this week's match of the week. I'm so excited that that Kurt has joined us today too, and I, I should say, Kurt, first time in 284 episodes, you know, yeah. Kurt, we get busy, my man. What can I tell you? Brian, Brian last had him on lockdown, Jeff. Let's be he honest. <laughs> this was the issue; we couldn't get him. But Kurt, when did when did we first meet? Was it like 79 or 80? It was 1980. We met at the WFIA convention. Uh, the convention that was best known for the Omni card where Oli turned on Dusty. 
that was. And Kurt and I, I think we were sitting in the same section and right near each other. So I just and, want to confirm, uh, did Kurt hear Pete Letterberg say, wouldn't it be wild if they turned on Dusty? Uh, did Kurt, did you hear yes. that? Okay. I he did. did. Everybody said, no, they're, I, I know everybody says that, that a lot of the smart fans knew a year ahead of time, but no, everybody was saying, nah, they're not going to do that. And you're right, Kurt, too. That's that that was so key. And Pete was the only one. And I remember when Pete said it, we all kind of looked at him like, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know. (laughs) It was a lot of that was a lot of fun. And uh, it's amazing that here we are on a podcast and we're we're both still young men uh, some 43 years later, almost 43 years later. But I just I'm turning 61 as of today. Oh, well, happy uh, right. right. I did see that. Happy yes. birthday. <laughs> Harry is going to be 65 in a couple months. So that's Oh, nice. my Lord. Yeah, well. Wow. <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a little bit. I'm actually the baby, and I'll lose the baby in this group, actually. But in between the three of us, me, you, and Jeff, I'm still the baby, even if it's just by a couple of months. But uh, so it, First off, obviously very thrilled that you're joining us. To answer Jeff's question, too, this is a fun match. And, you know, Gordman and Goliath, if you were to give me two tag teams that I think deserve, were deserved to be better known on a national scale. And when I say that, working more territories, Gordman, Gordman and Goliath and the Love Brothers. And uh, these were two guys. I only saw Gordman and Goliath live once. I think they were working Georgia, 76 Vandal. And, yes, uh, I believe they held the strap for a really brief time. If I they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like the, which is a very odd, you know, to wind up in Georgia. They came down to Miami. They had one match in Miami. They had one match in the entire state of Florida. I happened to be there. They worked with, uh, I think it was Greg Valentine and Raul Mata, which made a lot of mm. sense, right? In a lot of ways guys that they were familiar with and that was it we never saw them again and i always saw that as a missed opportunity much like the love brothers who i think got tied up in the iwa and maybe couldn't get work in other places i know that they didn't always get along those two but i thought they were a great tag team as well but for this match specific this is a fun match and look gordman and goliath i've all i it, maybe vandal maybe you can correct me if i'm wrong i i've heard that one of the reasons they didn't they didn't travel territory to territory was that uh, people or I guess promoters bookers didn't think that they were going to get over that the reason they were getting over in L.A. and in Texas was a large Mexican population and obviously doing the whole New Mexico gimmick etc. What do you think about that? As somebody that probably saw Gordman and Goliath hundreds of times, could they have gotten over nationally? Easily, easily. The problem is back then, very few promoters wanted anything more than like a token Latino, a token African-American wrestler, that sort of thing. LaBelle a little bit. The only promoter who really embraced that would use, in fact, a promoter who used Gordon and Goliath frequently was Paul Bosch. Paul Bosch was one of the few promoters smart enough to say, no, don't just bring in Mil Moscaris or Chavo. He'd bring in El Halcón, Delico. He knew the value of the, the Latino market. And while Gordman Goliath's gimmick of being in a heavily uh, Hispanic population and being billed as from New Mexico, that did help, definitely. And 
what made it even funnier is both of them spoke very broken English. I mean, Goliath lived, you know, lived in the States for the rest of his life once he moved here. But their English was very broken. So it was funny how they're saying they're from New Mexico. And when some, you know, a fan is cursing at them in Spanish, uh, they would reply, ah, shut up, Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> well, and just uh, before before we go on, just uh, for some of our younger listeners that aren't as familiar with their work, one of the things that would happen is when uh, Jimmy Lennon at the Olympic would introduce them, he'd say, from Mexico, Gordman and Goliath. And then they'd like kind of say, no, 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 we're not from Mexico. We're from New Mexico, which yeah. would, of course, cause all the Mexicans <laughs> in the audience to lose their collective shit. And it was, and you know what it reminds me of, uh, Barry and Kurt, is it reminds me when Jim Cornette, who was from Louisville, Kentucky, would have a, a card where they were in Louisville, and he would come out and introduce, you know, Midnight Express or his tag teams or whatever, and he'd say, hey, we're really happy to be here in Louisville. And all the people in Louisville would completely lose their minds because he was mispronouncing the the town's name and everything. So anyway, please, Barry, I love continue. It. Yeah, and, you know, funny on that note too. Killer Carl Cox, and if I haven't said it lately, Jeff, boy, do I love Cox. Yeah, you do. Okay. You set up you yeah. set a mouthful literally and figuratively there. Oh, well, I'm sitting up erect now. And do you love Murdoch? Murdoch too? Do you love Murdoch? Lots oh, of Murdoch in your mouth. We had lots of Murdoch in your mouth. We had a match between Dick Slater and Dick Murdoch that we reviewed probably four years ago, maybe even longer. And the jokes we had, we literally had tears rolling down our cheeks talking about the two dicks wrestling each other. But uh, if only they could have faced off against like Dick Byer and Dick the Bruiser or just been, you know, four dicks. Holy <laughs> shit. Dick, dicks left and right. New Year's Eve. It is a dick, uh, dick Royale. All right. How many dicks can we, uh, can we name here? Thank <laughs> dick you. Royale. A dick Royale. I love it. Uh, I think that, I, that I, might I, be the new title of the show this week. Dick Royale. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, Killer Carl Cox had this gimmick where whatever town he was from, this is after he turned babyface, whatever town he was from, he would be announced from. Prior to that, he would he would always if he was in West Palm Beach, they would say and residing from originally from Omaha, Nebraska, but now residing in West Palm Beach. And then he would grab the microphone and he would go, oh, no, I don't live in West Palm Beach. This is a dump. And and of course, what? It was great. I mean, because it got so much heat. And then once he turned babyface, he never did that. He would just let it ride out. But it was great. But anyways, getting back to this match, which I have a feeling we're going to say getting back to this match at least a dozen more times. Fun match. Relatively quick. I, You know, Chavo, Kurt, what year did Chavo start in Los Angeles? He started late in 75 and it was Ernie Ladd who gave him the initial rub uh, like same way Ernie Ladd gave Ruben Juarez the rub earlier as the giant killer. Ernie Ladd would would uh, have a little guy just kick his ass, for the, you know, from here to Friday, and then uh, that would kind of make the star. And that's what brought did it with Brad Armstrong too. That's oh, right. did he really? I didn't know yeah. that. But anyways, uh, Chavo was pretty cemented as the chief heel, and the Piper feud was legendary, but. Gordon and Goliath, I think, uh, I don't think they were around for a lot of 1976, but they came back at some point in 77. And the match you're talking to actually took place sometime, I think, in fall of 77. And that's the 78 on YouTube, but I'm just saying. Yeah, I think they're just a little off, but no big deal. 
But, uh, oh man, that just shows a little bit of Gordon and Goliath's talent. It, they were so much more than the team from New Mexico. And we mentioned Boldy's turn on Dusty, the two most historically significant matches I have seen live are that match and um, uh, Mitsuhar Misawa defeating Jumbo Saruta in 1990. And I would trade not seeing those, not being there for both of those if I could relive a match I saw Gordon and Goliath in live at the Olympic in 1974. It was only the second match of the evening. But they were wrestling two of the mid-carders, uh, Tony Rocco and La Pantera Negra, who were both excellent workers. And, you know, mid-carders, neither jobbers nor champs. So I was 12 years old, and uh, even though I let the magic still take over my mind, I, I knew that Gordon and Goliath would be going over. But they were so convincing when they gave the baby faces the hot tag, the way they would sell for them. They would actually, they actually had me thinking, oh my God, oh my God, low, you know, uh, Broco and Negra might go over tonight. They might win. They might win because that's for all the silly things the LaBelle promotion did over the year. One of the smart things is sometimes they would have one of the mid carders or occasionally even a jobber upset, uh, you know, one of the guys on top. And so they would get you believing it's possible. So when they gave over the hot tag to Rocco and Negra, the way they sold to them, you know, they'd be the ultimate bullies in the ring. And then when they gave off the hot tag, they just sold like the biggest bitches in the world, especially the way they would sell their wrists. Like they get put in a wrist lock and would get rammed at the turnbuckle. And the way Gordon would sell it, it's like he's crying to his mother, like, mommy, these bullies hurt me. <laughs> then, of course, when they came back, it's like I was just so enraged. I was so mad. I thought the story was going to go the way I wanted. I thought good would win out, and it didn't. And uh, it's the only match of the night where I saw stuff getting hurled into the ring. And the only other comparison to the way they could conduct the audience like an orchestra leader is Buddy Rose. And those are the uh, Gordon and Goliath and Buddy Rose are the two people I saw who could just drive an audience to near frenzy to the point where it just started to get dangerous. And then they knew how to just decompress everything, just especially with a hot tag. Then the audience would just, just, you know, loosen up and go crazy with happiness because the, you know, the baby faces were getting the rub and, uh, you know, those were, they were the masters at that. They were masters. So let's talk about the other side of the ring, uh, Kurt. And that is, Chavo and the mysterious mass Canadian who at the end of this match turns on his partner and is in fact revealed to be our old friend Roddy Piper. So this is obviously <laughs> the very genesis of that famous feud. Tell us your memories of the Piper and uh, Chavo feud. And, and here we had the very, you know, initial uh, beginnings of that feud. Tell us your memories of all that. You know, it was a good way to refresh the Chavo Piper feud because at that point, the Chavo Piper feud had been so overdone, like really overdone. They were wrestling each other constantly since early 76 until almost two years later. And 
when I talk about the silly things LaBelle did, it got so ridiculous. I don't know if you know this, but all of you, most of the TV aired live, you know, straight from the arena as it happened. And Wednesday night, Jeff Walton was hyping a Chavo Piper match. You know, this Friday, there's going to be no TV. You have to be there to see it. You know, it's for all the marbles this Friday night. And Kurt, what's so that number for tickets again? Richmond nine five one seven one. All roads lead to the lead to the Olympic Auditorium. Mary, did you see how I just uh, served up a softball for? Kurt that was there? wonderful too. <laughs> <laughs> but so so okay. So that's Wednesday night, and what's the main event this Friday? Chavo versus Piper, right? Yes. Guess what the main event on TV was that Wednesday night? I'm guessing this yes. match. Yeah. No, Travel oh. versus Piper. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought they, so I thought they had, they're they were hyping a big Travel versus Piper for Friday night, and then they have them wrestle each other in the main event on TV. So they did a lot of silly things, and the yeah. and Travel versus Piper was a great feud. They were both great, but they did it for freaking ever. And I can't remember if Piper had left for a short time, but kind of putting him under the Canadian thing, I think, gave a I wouldn't say it was the greatest thing in the world, but it kind of put it put a little freshness onto it. And it was pretty hysterical, too, because I don't know if you've seen the tapes where Black Wardman is the Canadian's manager. Have you seen those? No, I haven't. Oh, they're on YouTube. They're great. Black Wardman uh, will come out and uh, the Canadian's with him. And uh, so the gimmick is, you know, he's a Canadian, but he doesn't speak any English. He only speaks Spanish. So he needs his uh, manager, Black Ordman, to translate for him. And, you know, Black Ordman would cut promos for him. And then he would say, is that right, Canadian? And it was so obvious just the way uh, the Canadian would go, see, maestro, see, see, maestro. And that's all he'd really say, but in an unmistakable Piper voice. So, uh I obviously was mistaken, and, and I was thinking that this was the very beginning of their feud. They had been feuding in Los Angeles before Piper went under the hood as the Canadians. That's what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Piper Piper came in in 76. That was his okay. very first time. I, I, I know in his autobiography he said it was 74, but his calendar is like all uh, nonlinear. Yeah. Yeah, very nonlinear, I must say. So 76, yeah. he came in as a babyface and, like, a sheer jobber babyface just got his app whipped from here to Sunday. And then uh, one night he comes out as the manager of Java Rook, who was Johnny Rods under like uh, a Middle Eastern madman gimmick. Now, was he called the unpredictable Java Rook? I wish that would have been perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Unpredictable, homicidal, suicidal. (laughs) Um, But Piper, comes in just as his manager one night, just after just being this jobbed out baby face. And he's wearing a t-shirt that says on the back, if you can't beat them, join him. And, you know, he's got his kilt on. And then Java Root destroys somebody. And then Piper grabs the microphone. And right off the bat, he was gold on the mic. And he just says, you know, like, Two weeks ago in one of the dark towns, he said, uh, Java Root took me, this rookie who thought he'd do all the, you know, wrestle by the rules, and he just destroyed me, and he taught me the greatest lesson. 
And then he turns around and points to the back of the shirt. And he says, okay, fans, read this shirt, read this. And then he pauses. Oh, I forgot. You're not very good at that kind of stuff. Well, this says, if you can't beat them, join them. So that's what I did. And Piper took off. And, you know, that was the beginning of Piper. And as he'll credit, that was all Leo Garibaldi who came up with that. Was Leo was Leo booking at the time? Uh, yes. Yeah, Leo was booking, and he actually booked Piper as a heel against LaBelle's wishes, apparently. Apparently, LaBelle was really upset about that because I guess he and Leo just didn't get along. And I'm sure LaBelle changed his tune about that, though. And was did did Leo follow Louis Tillette as booker? Yes, yes. And sometimes he was even present when Louis uh, Tillette was there. But Louis was Louis was booking most of the time. After Louis Tillet booked, the only thing wrong with Louis Tillet booking was he put himself on top as the America's champion, which didn't come off well. But other than that, that was a great period when he booked the Hollywood Blondes uh, against the babyface Gordon and Goliath at one point. So, Vandal, uh, we, we had Louis. So Louis, Louis had a great record of booking. Uh, and I think the mm-hmm. one criticism that people would say was the fact that he would book himself and then try to get himself over, which is, you know, that's the Dusty Rhodes ego thing, no doubt. He did that in Gulf Coast. I know he did it out there. He did it in Florida as well. But imagine doing it. You saw Louis in 75. We saw yes. Louis four years later in 79 putting himself wow. in main events. A lot of it was fill-in. If somebody couldn't show up, he would come out and either tag with Dusty. But there was a match he had in Miami Beach. And I want to say he was with Dusty, but it was a top baby face. And Louis was grossly overweight. And Louis also was uh, just his cardio was was lacking. And there was a period where you you were swearing this guy was having a heart attack in the ring. Like it was oh that bad. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I want to say, too, I, Louis is not in the best of health. Happy to say he's still with oh. us. But uh, he's uh, it's Alzheimer dementia. He's had it for several years living in the Carolinas, but uh, still kicking. So happy to say that at the very oh, least. Very good. So, I'm wh- sorry to hear he's in bad health, though. When Louis when Louis was out there, Kurt, uh, is that when Greg Valentine first came out to L.A. also? Yeah. Because you're talking Louis about the Blondes. Yeah, Louis Tillet came, if I recall correctly, late in 74. That's when Pompero Furpo was here as a baby face. That's when the Hollywood Blondes came in. And the following year, people like Mickey Doyle, um, Dennis Stamp, who actually LaBelle was, I think, one of the few guys who used Dennis Stamp really well. And it was, it was, I, I think it was the really last good period in LA wrestling. The, the Chopper and Piper feud was, I think, kind of the one bright spot of the territory from 76 on. Every now and then you get a hint of something good. Uh, like in 79, Leo was booking and it was looking kind of bright for a while. But from 1980 on, the territory was just gone. The only exceptions was every now now and then they would do a show where they'd bring in a few people from Mexico, like Peru, Aguayo, and Fishman, El Solitario. And when they did that, man, the attendance went way up, and they never learned their lesson. (laughs) They just kept on, you know, going with their old formula, which was no longer working. Yeah. So anyway, so let's uh, just uh, to wrap up. This segment on, on this match. So what happens is, uh, eh, about 12 minutes in, 
Uh, we have Chavo going over to the corner looking for the hot tag and that dastardly Canadian mask guy nails Chavo. Uh, Chavo takes the pinfall and then, uh, you know, I, I'm sure all hell broke loose in the Olympic needles to say. Yes. And I remember seeing it that night. I, the night it aired. Uh, I mean, you know, it gave me a pretty good pop. You know, I, was, I think I was like 15 at the time. So, well, let me just ask you, though, but was it something where people were kind of, did people know it was Piper? That I have no idea because, you know, I was not attending the shows live at okay, the time. Okay. I, I, I'm like a half hour away from L.A. I was 15, and uh, my family was a little concerned how, just how obsessed I was with pro wrestling. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it wasn't yeah, until I could drive. all of us have in common. <laughs> exactly. And then when I drove, I always went to the San Bernardino Arena. Who, it was one of those matchbook arenas that was built mainly for boxing and wrestling and nothing else. And that was a much more fun place to see wrestling, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to post a link to this match uh, in our Facebook group, Breaking Cape with Bowdrin and Barry. I will tell you uh, that I, not only, you know, I usually say we encourage you to check this match out and watch it. But one of the things that I'm going to ask you as a listener to uh, to check out in this match is this really gives you a, a look at a great almost now forgotten tag team, you know, of course, uh, you know, people that are historians or archivists like Barry Rose, you know, <laughs> we, re we remember Gordman and Goliath, but so many of the younger fans don't remember them, just how good they were. Uh, first of all, they're, for lack of a better way of putting it, their gimmick, you know, the whole uh, we're from New Mexico thing to get heat with the Mexican fans and the Latin fans uh, in so uh, Southern California and in Texas, as Barry said. There's also another match out there where I believe they're uh, against uh, on YouTube with Jose Lothario and uh, and Buddy Marino. Buddy Marino. And uh, yeah, well, please put that link on because that really shows. I mean, the match with Traveling the Canadian was kind of like a, a vehicle, you know, to get Piper over, but. You really get to see them do their full work in the match with Moreno and Lothario. That yeah. is a really, and it's a shame a lot more of their matches, you know, aren't out there. I'm, I'm actually shocked. I know a lot of stuff goes into the ether, but there's a, you can find a lot of stuff of them as singles wrestlers, but very little of Gordon and Goliath as a tag team. Kurt, where, where is Gordman now? I've heard he's in Brooklyn. I've heard he's in Puerto Rico. Any idea? <laughs> Neither, neither. I, I, he saw, I, is it, I can't remember. I think it's Guadalajara, but no, he's in Mexico. He's in his late eighties. And I saw a photo of him, I think about a year ago. He's, he looks really good. And like late eighties is like 130 in wrestler years. Yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Hey Kurt, we certainly appreciate you joining us, buddy. Talking a little Gorman yeah. and Goliath, giving us a little historical context on the old L.A. promotion uh, out of the Olympic Auditorium. Jimmy Lennon, uh, you know, uh, your announcer at one of the greatest all ever, greatest ever. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is, is Lou, is Lou Kippelman still on the air with us? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, sure. Lou. Hey, Lou. Yes. Yes. I, I want to know. I want, I want to know. know that he will welcome, welcome me there. there. I do not want. I do not know how to read or write. <laughs> I don't know how to feed myself, but that's enough for me. That's enough, that's for, enough me for me. No. Uh, I just had to get a little old time religion okay, okay, in our see, blood see before now, we go. You know why you ruined it? Because now instead of the Dick Royale, this might be uh, have to be titled Kippelman Sings. You know, yes, <laughs> it must be. 
So the CD, the CD oh, was, will be coming out. <laughs> that was, that was an old school, an old school religious fans. vinyl C, vinyl LP that will be on eBay within three years. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> collectible, collectible. Vandal, oh, Vandal, yeah. what, what, where exactly in the LA area are you? I'm in uh, Claremont. It's like a little college town. It's right by Pomona. Okay. Gotcha. I may be out there in May. If so, you know Gabe Daigle? Yeah, I have not seen him in many, many years, but I know him well. Nice guy. Well, I think Very we're nice going to do a, uh, a meetup at a at one of the two remaining I, I thought you were gonna chickens. Say, I, I thought you were going to say we need to do a three-way, which, you know, that was good. Well, absolutely. Oh, yeah. baby. Lucky Pierre is there. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you, guys. It was wonderful talking with you. Very quick little food talk segment just because I like to throw a dog a bone. Mm. And you are the dog in question here. I'm going to cover my my boy's snaps ears so he doesn't hear that. But I saw this article and thought of you, Barry Rose, uh, courtesy of the DailyDot.com. He said the the thing, uh, the article starts off, my whole life has been a lie. Restaurant worker shows how restaurants have been tricking into customers, have been tricking customers into thinking that their fajitas are sizzling. So before I tell you what this guy wrote, Barry Rose, as a former server and manager, Barry Rose, how do restaurants keep the fajitas sizzling as they are brought to your table? Uh I have no idea. I'm going to assume that there's some sort of liquid or oil. Ah, you are so clever. According to this article says a TikToker gave a behind the scenes glimpse at how fajitas really sizzle at a Mexican restaurant and commoners revealed that their minds were blown by the revelation. Mind blown. Commoners. Yes. Video that's not derogatory. <laughs> that's, that's not derogatory. Sure. <laughs> 1.2 million views since being first posted. Wow. According to the caption, it was shot at a Mexican restaurant in Houston, Texas. Go figure. They have Mexican restaurants in Texas? Who would have known, what? Barry? Gorman and, and Goliath are there. That's right. That's exactly. In the video, the creator holds a plate of fajitas for a waiter who looks to be wearing a GoPro camera or some other similar device. From the waiter's point of view, we can see the creator pouring water out of a squeeze bottle onto the plate. Yeah. And the waiter takes it in all its steaming and sizzling glory through the restaurant and to the customer. Barry Rose. Have we all been lied to by the food and restaurant industry? Well, it, and I've seen that. So I, I, I speak up, Rose. We want I, to know. I'm a little, yeah, the, this is like, you know what this is like? This is like, uh, that show that was on years ago where the guy wore a mask and was, uh, talking about the secrets of pro wrestling. And then there were the secrets of magic. Well, there's the secrets of restaurants and they usually use it. So it's a little plastic squirt bottle. Uh, and I've seen it. And the truth is every restaurant does that depending on what the item is. The one restaurant that I don't think does it, but I bet I'm wrong might be Ruth Chris Steakhouse. And because you're a fan of Ruth's Chris, I'm a fan of Ruth's Chris. Everything comes out essentially sizzling. However, I think everything is cooked on like, what do they say? 1800 degrees. And then your plate goes in there. So while I think it's butter, it is a liquid as well. It's liquefied butter. So I don't think shit can sizzle without some sort of liquid on it, though. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. What about your better knowledge on that, my friend? Yeah. yeah. What do I know? Yeah. 
All right, Barry, now, because it's been a hot tick since we've done this, and we didn't do it last week. What? Barry Rose, are you ready for Florida Man or not? Have you been keeping tabs on my record, by the way, on what I've I think learned? you are 2 and 74. <laughs> That's three, about right. Three, all right. You're well below the Mendoza line for all you <laughs> baseball fans. I'll take so, it. Anyway, first story, Barry, coming to us uh, courtesy of the Huffington Post. Oh, yeah. The headline reads, Frisbee Dog Drops Deuce on Basketball Court. And the crowd goes wild. All right. First of all, did you see the video of this? It's been out there on social media. I have not, but I want to see it now. uh, A dog who was supposed to entertain the crowd by catching Frisbees at a Tuesday night men's basketball game earned his pay, but not in the intended manner. That's because the crowd didn't cheer on the dog for catching Frisbees, but for dropping a deuce on the basketball court. To be fair to the dog, it didn't poop until the end of the performance. That's very nice of him to hold it until then. So perhaps, uh, this is according to the article, it was intended as an encore. Uh, so uh, one person suggesting that the dog might be commenting on the performance of the home team. Barry Rose, Florida dog or not? I love the dog stories, too. So let me ask you a question about your dog, Jeff. Will your dog go anywhere or does it have to be on grass or a specific area well our two dogs of course uh the beloved snap and uh and our molly girl uh both have their own little idiosyncrasies a very uh, good use of the term idiosyncrasies first time bear uh yeah i hold yeah, on thank let, you, me, thank let me check first time yeah check yeah. the records check the records yeah so they both have their own little particular parts of the yard that they like. And, you know, uh, one of the things, Snap, he likes to make sure that some, someone is watching him. You know, it's like, I, I've heard that dogs, when they, when they take a, a drop the proverbial deuce, as they say here, they like to know that someone's got their back, someone's watching out and protecting him in case, you know, God forbid something should come running up on him. Our other dog, Molly, will like shame look you while she's dropping the deuce because <laughs> she doesn't want anyone watching her. Sure. You know, she's like, she gives you that look like, Excuse me, can I have some privacy, please? And then she'll kind of turn away from you uh, with a disgusted look anyway. Uh, what about, uh, you know, your, your Oz man? Uh, how's he handled the dropping of the deuce? What I like about Ozzy, one of the many things I like about Ozzy, he will take, much like his owner, he'll take a shit anywhere regardless of uh, – That's for you, Joe Christie. Rest exactly. in peace. Exactly. Rest in peace, Joe Christie. Matt Crowder picked up a little bit where Joe left off. But I, when we were in Pittsburgh, not this past summer, the summer before, we had lunch with the Javorskis, and I'm walking Ozzy, and we're just on a city street. Ozzy in the middle of lots of people didn't give a shit, literally took the biggest crap ever right on the sidewalk. So he doesn't really care. He'll go wherever he has to go. I'm going to say this – dog it uh he said basketball court i'm gonna say not that it matters but i'm gonna say this was not florida the aforementioned on this particular episode Louisville, kentucky wow yes it was at a game with the uh, apparently the uh, the men of uh, the university of louisville and virginia tech the, their game louisville not having a good team uh, this year four and 26 at the time of this article barry that's uh that record is almost uh in keeping with your record uh, here in Florida man but you got that one right. So uh very a little different subject matter here. Are you familiar with the actress Gwyneth Paltrow? Unfortunately I am. Yes, named her daughter Apple. That's pretty much enough. Uh and, and anyway, this was the same woman selling the vagina scented candles. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. How many did you get? 
Oh, I, I got, got a baker's dozen, actually. Thank you. That's nice yeah. of you. Yes, I'm, I'm sure uh, around dinner that, uh, you know, that's always appropriate. But anyway, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to segue away from the, uh, the Florida man just for a second because I saw this uh, article and the, the headline was just so interesting. Gwyneth Paltrow avoided speaking directly to the restaurant staff and instead ordered through her personal assistant. The article goes to say, uh, did Gwyneth Paltrow avoid speaking directly to restaurant staff and instead order through her personal assistant? It's possible, considering how Paltrow has supposedly acted towards other people on certain occasions. Some celebrities have been known to act like divas. No! Come on, oh, Harry! Come on! What? This is shocking, oh, the allegations. Uh, she founded her own company, Goop. I'm not going to ask what that stands for. It seems like that even with all her success, might not be one of the nicer celebrities in Hollywood. She has supposedly acted like a diva on more than one occasion. Reportedly, Paltrow avoided speaking directly to restaurant staff and instead ordered through her personal assistant. Some celebrities have had more than one story come out about their over-the-top behavior. Paltrow has had to deal with a few stories about her supposed diva behavior. According to the Daily Mail, always a reputable source, the actor has demanded a lot of those who work for her. When she goes out to the gym, apparently before she showers, Gwyneth makes someone go into the stall and wipe the entire stall dry. She refuses to touch what she calls someone else's shower water. She also has refused to use toilet paper that anyone else has touched and demands an unopened package. Along with those demands, Paltrow also makes sure to send someone to the gas station to buy a couple bottles of smart water for her, even though the gym supplies water. Now, the reason I bring this up, first of all, kind of douchey behavior, I think we'll agree, Mike Gwyneth. But Barry Rose, as a former server and manager, tell me, because I know you've had interactions with celebrities, tell me the douchiest celebrity that you've ever had to deal with in the restaurant industry. And there were several. Oh, please offer more than one if you'd like. Do you remember an artist from a female African-American artist from 25 years ago that had a one song? She was a one hit wonder. Her name was Macy Gray. And I, I got a fan. She had a very unique. I remember voice. the name. I don't remember the song. Go ahead. She was horrific. So, and that, actually, and this was the irony. So we, at that stage, you had all the biggest celebrities coming in. I mean, Seinfeld would come in daily. Bedbet Midler sat at a table right next to Seinfeld. You had all these big names coming in. And then you had Macy Gray, who was a one-hit wonder, massive. See you next Tuesday. And the reason I say that she walked in, I'm the manager, and I demand respect because I, I stick my chest out with authority, and I said, may I help you? And she completely breezes by me looking for someone, and I said, may I help you? And she said, I don't need to talk to you. And I sat there, and I bit my lip, and I was ready to go off, and I didn't say a word. She then went outside to look for somebody, came back in, looked me dead in the eye and said, I need a table now. And I looked her dead in the eye and I said, it'll be 45 minutes. And that was essentially how I would get revenge. The other one was this completely pompous, also uh, a, a similar word that I just used. Do you remember an actress named Lily Sobieski? Oh, yeah. It was funny because I was just watching Deep Impact earlier. Is she the, okay? <laughs> Is she in that? She's in that movie? Yes. She marries Elijah Wood at the end of the movie. Okay. She looked like a young Helen Hunt. To, yes, absolutely. And, 
But she, so when she came in, I'll say she was 18. I don't know. I mean, she was young and, uh, just the most, just snobby, snooty, rude, unfriendly from start to finish. Anyone that she encountered, she was just terrific. Doesn't seem to have much of a career in Hollywood. I'm assuming maybe because. She, uh, her personality was just brutal, but those were two that, that really came to mind. Not a fan. My other, uh, remembrance of Lily Sobieski, she was in the, uh, movie with Drew Barrymore called Never Been Kissed. I do remember she that movie. She was one of the girls in high school that befriended, uh, Drew Barrymore in that movie. Anyway, so, uh, so you're going with Lily Sobieski, Macy Gray as the, uh, the two most, uh, eh, bitchy, snobbiest Gwyneth Paltrow behaving celebs that you've dealt with. Yeah, but here, here's the irony is you get some of these celebrities like Catherine Bach, Daisy Duke came in and Bach, ah, Bach, ah. and she was with a young child, two or three years old. She was with, I'm guessing, a nanny. And somehow we started talking and my ex was pregnant with Zach at the time. And we probably talked for 45 minutes. And she was the nicest person ever, and I had no idea who she was until she gave me the credit card. And then I was like, holy fuck, you just had a conversation about child care for 45 minutes with Daisy Duke. Had no idea, but she was the most down-to-earth, just nice person. And I think that was like right around the same day, which was the irony of it. So I would go with those two, though. By the way, was she, in fact, wearing the Daisy Dukes that night? No, and uh, no. that's okay. probably a good thing, I should say, as well. <laughs> so, yeah, but couldn't have been nicer. Yeah, if you're a certain age, you remember Catherine Bach and the Daisy Dukes. That's all yes, I'm going to say. And now, back, we return, Barry, to Florida Man or Not, uh, the segment on our show. The headline reads, Barry, <clears throat> courtesy, by the way, of Law and Crime, uh, the oh, new online wow. newsletter, yes. Headline reads, woman slams SUV into Popeye's because her order didn't have biscuits. Now, say what you will, Barry. I will say that uh, the one thing Popeye's does offer that I'm a fan of is their biscuits. <clears throat> there ain't no shame there. So, uh, Barry Rose, the uh, story continues. A woman was arrested after investigators say she's crashed her SUV into a Popeye's on purpose. By the way, you like Popeye's? Did we talk about that previously? I do. I actually had Bojangles for lunch today. Not the same thing, Barry, please. No, but, you know, but still. Popeye's yeah. offers a little more of a Cajun twin. Even though, you know, I, I read that, like, the the uh, the headquarters of the company is not, in fact, in Louisiana. It's like, you know, like New York or something like that. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely not Louisiana, though. I know that. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, because she didn't get any biscuits with her order, according to the arrest reports. Police arrived on the scene to the fast food chicken restaurant on February 18th for a call about an accident with injuries. The manager told the deputy that a customer, later identified as Belinda Miller, had drove her Toyota RAV4 into one of the entrances of the building, quote, after she became upset that her order didn't have any biscuits, unquote. One of the restaurant's employees was almost hit by Miller's SUV. According to the manager, a witness told uh, police she was in the parking lot and saw Miller slam into the SUV or slam the SUV into the side of the restaurant, then saw her drive off. Oh, I'm sure she could have uh, got away. Oh, oh, Lou chiming in. It's uh, apparently Miami, which is also well known as a, a centerpiece of the Cajun, uh, you know, uh, culture. Uh, anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, another witness told investigators that she was waiting in line inside the Popeyes when Mel Miller allegedly told her, quote, you better hurry up and get her order because she was coming back in there, according to the report. Mary Rose, Florida woman or not. 
Sweet Lou checking into Pop 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 Guys. Popeyes is headquartered in Miami. Isn't that what wow. I just said? <clears throat> anyway, go ahead. Okay. Uh, in any case. Gotta stop taking the edibles while we're bro- broadcasting. Well, yeah. Well, Vandal was on today, I figured. Okay, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah you gotta, you know. Uh, easily, well, so Popeyes being headquartered in Miami and you're telling me this story. The game's called Florida Men or Not. You are a thinker, my friend. Oh, I'm trying to looking for every, you know, that was my fault because I told you my process for, for doing this and then you stopped immediately with any hints. It was like just fucking immediate the way you stopped. So now I actually have to, uh, I'm going to say this is not Florida though. Richmond County, Georgia. Wow. Where's that? Uh, I have no idea. I was hoping someone oh. could tell me because it ain't <laughs> near me. That's all I know. So, uh, but, uh, good stuff. Next story coming to us courtesy of Barry Rose's favorite newspaper, the New York Post. The headline reads, wedding venue owner points gun at newlyweds during reception. Get out. <clears throat> Couples marriage got off to a rocky start when the owner of the reception venue pointed a gun at them and ordered everyone to get out, uh, over a dispute over the music. Insane video posted by the DJ and cousin of the bride shows the irate man waving the weapon and shouting a terrified guest Thursday night at uh, during the ceremony. <clears throat> he begins to wave at, at everyone in the party, telling us all to get out, get out, Campbell told news reports, uh, adding that the mayhem erupted during the last song. Of the, the last song, Barry. I mean, come on. DJ told the news report that a worker at the venue ordered him to turn off the music over fears of noise complaints, then spilled a drink on his equipment, even though he had turned the music down. Barry Rose, Florida man or not? This 100% sounds like a Florida story. This, this Southwest sounds- Ranches Woo! in lovely Broward County, Florida. Of course it is, Barry. Very nice. You're starting off three for three. You're I know. What's good, going man. on today? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's it. We're done. I'm walking yes, away. Good night, everybody. Good night. Next story, yeah. Barry. <clears throat> Stripper arrested for throwing wad of money at man. Now, see, that's the kind of reversal that Howard Baum is definitely down for, Barry. Florida. Uh, <laughs> 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 the story first. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> you're right, but I'm going to read the damn story. Okay. <laughs> the Florida stripper was arrested last month after she allegedly hurled a large amount of rolled-up money at her co-worker's head. Tierra Miller, who knew her name would be Tierra? Oh, uh, yeah. Her better accuser, sure. a 34-year-old man, identified as Howard Baum. No, anyway, whom she had previously dated for six months. Wait a minute, this might actually be Howard Baum. Both work at the strip club in Clearwater. <clears throat> the name, Barry? Baby uh, dolls. Baby dolls. There you go. Okay. So yes, this was uh this was in Clearwater. Uh, Barry, you're you're rolling, my friend. Was that five for five now? I think I'll take it, but it's four for four. But I'll okay. still take that five for five. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's confused with five. All for you five had to three. say was stripper through a lot of money <laughs> somewhere. I'm like, yeah, that's Florida, sure. Okay. Uh, next story, Barry. <clears throat> Beachgoers. Yeah, wait a minute. We got some pop-ups there. Beachgoers report unexpected encounter with nudist. Some beachgoers are describing their surprise encounter with nudist at a popular stretch of sand. One lady said, quote, they're big fat guys laying there like this. I don't want to see that kind of stuff. What are you not fat shaming there? Is she Barry? Was oh. uncomfortable. <laughs> she was covering her eyes. Another one told news reports sections of the seashore that had been damaged by hurricanes and storms and some signs marking areas of nude sunbathing were washed away in the storms. 
They had some families venturing onto stretches of beach that normally they would not go. Officials say there are no federal laws addressing nudity on this beach since it's a national park. But according to police reports, parts of the beach are on state property where it's illegal to go nude. Barry Rose. First of all, Barry, I, I feel compelled to ask you. Yes, you and ever, I was getting ready to tell you about it, but go ahead. Yeah, you, You've done the uh, the nude sunbathing, have you? So I was 18 or 19. and Server or uh, manager? Uh, server, for sure, at that time. <laughs> and uh, Spiker's, Spiker's getting it on tonight. Spiker is. <laughs> That's like four, uh, you know, <laughs> Spiker, this is the Chris Spiker, uh, yeah, what is it? The Dick Royale, Kippelman yeah, thing. we've already yeah. got a couple different names for the episode, please. Yeah, but uh, so it was my group of friends at the time, and there was a nude beach, and I want to say it was on Key Biscayne. And uh, so we in our head were, oh, this is going to be great. We'll go to the nude beach. And nobody wants to see their friends naked, but at the same time, there's going to be girls here, right? We're going to a nice beach. There's it, the weather was beautiful. It, there's going to be lots of nude women. You know, who knows? Our biggest concern at that stage, if I remember driving, was if we all get boners, how do we keep the boners <laughs> down? Right? That, that would use the word boners. There. Yeah, that would not be the problem now. But nobody, not even one of us, raised the concern of the issue that we were about to face. Attractive young people don't go to nude beaches. Yeah, it's usually fat Canadian guys from Montreal, right? That's 100% what it was. It was either fat, but they were all gigantic. They were all really old, and it was the most – it was like, oh, my God. And we just – there was no worry of getting boners. Like, nobody had that issue. I think we were there for maybe an hour, and we were like, we got to get out of here. And, again, when you're 18 or 19, you're an 18, 19-year-old male – you know, nude beach sounds exciting. Oh, my God, what a disappointment. Apparently, they're all like that, though, Jeff. Well, I will counter that story and offer up my significant shrinkage uh, story. Uh, yes, uh, during my uh, the heyday of my youth when I was working as a, uh, in fact, an assistant manager at the, the beloved Toys R Us, uh, and I happened to have a uh, an evening of uh, romantic interludes with a young lady that uh, that worked there. Uh, and we went back to her place and we decided, uh, yeah, she lived in an apartment complex. We're going to go into the pool. Well, so we went into the pool, decided to go, uh, you know, <clears throat> what you call your basic, uh, in the nude, uh, jumped in the pool. We're swimming around. Uh, I was noticing that, uh, because of the chill and the air and the pool, uh, the problem that you encountered at the beach, I was also not uh, happening, uh, you know, with me because, uh, you know, as as George Costanza has taught us, when you go in the pool, you know, anyway, significant shrinkage, significant, uh, significant shrinkage, uh, you know. And uh, so anyway, uh, but then as we're swimming around, we uh, see uh, one of the uh, security guards for the complex because it was a very large complex. Uh, we see the uh, the golf cart coming up, and we're like, oh, shit, we're going to get busted here in the pool, uh, you know, swimming naked. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, so we're kind of uh, doing our best. Uh, it's kind of hard to hide in a pool, you know. You're kind of uh, leaning up against the <laughs> yeah, pile. Yeah, right, sure. And, and so, uh, you know, and so the guy comes, and he's literally standing right over us, right? And uh, we're like, you know, trying not to say anything, trying to be quiet as a church mouse. And all of a sudden we hear, <clears throat> and the guy turns and walks away. So we absolutely know that he saw us. And, uh, yeah, then, uh, you know. He was uh, human, though. Good for, yeah, you know what? Yeah. Exactly. How how good absolutely. for him. Yeah, that might have been a tad I, awkward. Yeah, I've got that shrinkage storage as well. And it was 
I want to say it was January of 1994. And I remember, sadly, my father had passed away probably within a week. And I was out with, uh, my, a friend of mine and two females who were also friends. It wasn't like romantic stuff, but we decided to go skinny dipping at one of their pools. And being that it was January, you know, January in Florida, Jeff, as you know, could be 80 and could also be 45. So I want to say it was probably in the sixties. And, uh, I, my friend was like, I'm jumping in nude. He didn't, he didn't give a shit. He was a hundred percent in and I'm sitting there going, give me like a minute. I need to think. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to embarrass myself, so I got deep in thought, and then I was ready I gotta to jump do some in. manipulation here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good times. Youth are good times. Yes. So you didn't answer the question, Barry. Florida, oh. uh, man, or not? Florida Beach, uh, not. I'm going to say, oh, shit, I'm doing really well. I'm going to say this is Florida, yeah. Brevard County. Woo! You are kicking ass and taking names. That's it. Have a good night. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let's Another Costanza next... reference. Go out on top, my friend. Yes, exactly. Always go out on top, right? <laughs> <laughs> the jerk store called. They're running out of you. <laughs> exactly. All right, Barry, I will tell you that uh, upon uh, investigation, the following story that was sent to me, in fact, was a uh, was not an actual story. It was like from one of these, uh, you know, uh, Babylon B. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, that's the joke news site. Uh, the Onion. Yes. Uh, it's one of these. But it's such a great headline that I had to share it with you. The headline, especially because it's also a food-related headline. Barry Rose. A man wielding raw steaks slaps diners in the face at a vegan restaurant yelling, quote, If you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. <laughs> that's awesome. I-, I thought this was such a great headline that I almost read it like it was going to be an actual news story. And, uh, and by, by the way, the alleged, a uh, fake story, uh, allegedly, uh, not really took place in, is it pronounced, Lou, help us out here. Is it Ojai? O-J-A-I? Ojai. Ojai. Uh, you know, that's right. Didn't Credence have a song going back to Ojai or something like that? Uh, uh anyway. Lodi. Lodi. Well, what the fuck? I'm all confused here, but, uh, <laughs> Californians needed to learn how to pronounce the damn names, but I just thought that was a great headline, Barry. I had to share it with you next. However, I believe is in fact a legit story, Barry. The headline read, oh, by the way, a little shout out, uh, Barry to the rarely mentioned Andy Bowdrin, Andrew oh. Bowdrin, my son, who Absolutely. sent this one to me courtesy of, uh, let's see, uh, I don't know where the uh, courtesy is. Anyway, the headline reads, God, or I'm sorry, giving the middle finger is a God given right. Judge rules. <clears throat> the story reads, Barry. I hate fucking pop-ups. Giving your neighbor the middle finger may not be polite, but it's protected as part of a person's right of freedom of expression under the Constitution. In a uh, lengthy decision, the judge dismissed a case against a man accused of harassing his neighbor in a local suburb. To be abundantly clear, the judge wrote, it is not a crime to give someone the finger. Flipping the proverbial bird is a God-given Enshrined right that belongs to every red-blooded citizen, he added. The accuser, Neil uh, Epstein, a teacher, had been arrested by police for uttering death threats and being charged with criminal harassment against his neighbor. Uh, in his decision, the judge launched a stinging rebuke of the neighbor and the complaint. Uh, the, the person issuing the complaint, Michael Nash, whose grievances, he said, were, quote, nothing more than mundane, petty neighborhood trivialities. Very rose. 
Is it a Florida man giving the finger or not? Oh, that's a tough one right there, and I got a lot writing because I'm undefeated this week. Yeah, they, yeah, Andy, Andy could topple you from your. I know, I know, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna say this is not Florida. This, in fact, Barry Rose. Let's see here where it's particular. Fucking hate pop up ads. Uh, along with everybody else, Quebec, Canada. Woo! Barry, still intact. Still, you're, you're still batting a thousand. Yeah, Good Lord, crazy. you continue this, and your batting average may go over the Mendoza line. <laughs> Next story, Barry. <clears throat> oh, this is one I found myself, Barry. You're going to love okay. this one. Woman asked city council to create Sugar Daddy and Mommy Appreciation Day. Oh, all right. I, I wish this was an onion story, but it's not, Barry. <clears throat> story goes. Uh, it's the kind of story that can be the definition of the term uh, Florida man or not. Uh, they, they actually reference Florida man or not. They've been listening to the podcast, Barry. Yep. A woman had had just one simple request as she spoke before a local planning and zoning board, and that was to create a day honoring sugar daddies and sugar mommies. <laughs> the, I swear to God, That's this great. is a real story. That's great. <laughs> the woman, oh, it gets better, Barry, who really? identified herself as Ashley Cream. That's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> Asked that Mar- March 10th be designated as Sugar Mommy and Daddy Appreciation oh, Day. My. You guys may not be aware, she said. But the largest per capita population of sugar daddies in the U.S. is right here. Barry Rose, is this a Florida man or not? Sorry, a Florida woman or not? Where are the largest? Right here. Oh, in the city, wherever they are. Yeah. Uh, sugar. It's, I mean, that's if I was going to. So if I'm going to guess, I like this, too. Sweet Lou, can you join us for a minute, Sweet Lou? First of all, are you oh, in sure. favor of a sugar? Are you in favor of a sugar mommy and daddy day? <laughs> Absolutely, I am. Sweet Lou, I, in my head, I was thinking if this was the sugar daddy capital of the world, I think I've got three cities that come to mind. New mm-hmm. York, Miami, Florida, Los Angeles, California. Those would be the three cities. What do you say? I was thinking right along those same lines. So. Jeff, I'm gonna, and I'm thinking Miami is probably sugar daddy and sugar mama capital of the world. I'm gonna say this is Florida. Azucar Papas. I will say, Barry Rose, I'm only giving you half credit because it is in fact not Miami. So if it's not Miami, what would the sugar mama, uh, and daddy Fort Lauderdale. Flo- nope. That, wow. I'm gonna revoke this, this half a point from you, Rose. I, wow, I'm shocked. So it is somewhere. Boca Raton, my friend. Oh, okay. It's South Boca. Florida. There you go. It's Boca. Yes. It, yeah. Makes sense. So, for those who don't know, yes, it is Boca. Correct, Barry? Yes. Yes. So uh, uh, the next story, uh, Barry, pull it up here. Naked man, the headline reads, tells police he is from a different earth. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Let's see here. Uh, let's see. Uh have to... Figure out how to word this uh, so as to not give you any hints here. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, people dining and strolling down a local town uh, avenue were not prepared to see a naked man walking down the street towards them. That was out of the world. And according to police reports, he claimed that he was from, quote, a different earth. A gentleman whose name was, uh, let me see if I pull it up here, Jason Smith. That offers no clues, Barry. Uh, let's see. Was charged with indecent exposure, disorderly conduct, and resisting arrest. Police say that an employee 
from a local restaurant, called police and reported a naked man had just walked past a restaurant in full view of the customers. Police arrived on the scene and approached Smith, who allegedly said he did not know where he had left his clothes. I hate when that happens. Barry, maybe that was you on the beach that night. You forgot where you left your clothes. He was arrested and taken into police custody, where he initially refused to give his name and date of birth. He also alleged the officers that he did not have a Social Security number or ID, according to television reports. According to the arrest report, he allegedly told the police he resided on a different earth. Barry Rose, Florida man or not. Got a lot riding on this one because that that was a Florida. Even though I didn't get the city correct, at least I got the state. You got a half a point. You got a half a point. Yeah, but I'm still going on the undefeated this episode. So obviously this is there's a lot riding on this one. I'm going to say this one is not Florida. Palm Beach. Oh, it's over. It's over. It's over. It's over, Johnny. It's over. We get to win this time. Stay gold, pony boy. Stay gold. Yeah, stay gold, pony boy. Barry Rose, this concludes this particular edition of Florida Man or Not. You were undefeated. Oh, until that last story. The naked guy in Palm Beach took you down. All right, Barry, about time for the old go home, my friend. Another week in the books in the old spank bank, if you will. Which is, by the way, I think it's the first time we've ever used the term spank bank on this, on this fine, award-winning show. Here's the scary part. What, what if somebody is spanking it to us? Every, I mean, oh, my God. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Let, let, let's see. If you're going to guess if there was one member of the brothership or sisters of the brothership, <laughs> who would it be that would be spanking it? Because I got my – uh Let's see. I'm thinking there's a guy that lives around Pittsburgh. Yeah. He's still trying to explain that to Sean Watson trade. Losing record, by the way. And, you know, that's all I'm going to say. But, uh, yes, uh, it's in the Spank Bank. Uh, we are about ready to take this uh, ship into the ferry. You're about ready to go home, my friend. Let's do it. Excellent episode. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, oh, yeah. Almost- no particular. You're still just in the glow of the, your record this week in the Florida Man or Not segment. But on that note, I will uh, thank my co-host, Barry Rose, outside of Philadelphia, PA, our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman, my boy, Gunny. I love you, buddy, and miss you. And on that note, I am the booker, Jeff Bowdrin, and Lewis, you may bring it home, my friend. Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. 